welcome to episode kind of two for epi- for ranking 76. Uh, this is our background episode, so hopefully you've already listened to our rounds. If you haven't, it should just be the one, the other uh, title that is in the feed right now. Uh, today, we're just going to go into a very brief description. If you are not uh, a fan of American history or not as familiar with it, we're going to kind of tell you what the American West is and why we think it's a topic worth covering. Um, I suppose we should do introductions. I am Eric. And I'm Matt. And today, we're just going to do a little bit of conversation with you guys. We're going to start off when we're talking about how the West, we need to go back literally as far back as the Pilgrims. Uh, We're not going to focus on the Jamestown Pilgrims. We're going to focus on the Plymouth Pilgrims. Jamestown's is a little bit older, but Plymouth is a little bit, uh, fits our story narrative just a little bit more. Um, Who are the Pilgrims? The Pilgrims are essentially a very religious sect who did not agree with the religion in England. England at this time, if you disagreed with the Church of England, you disagreed with the monarch. And kings, if you didn't know, kind of notorious for not being accommodating for other opinions. So the Pilgrims have a choice. They can either stay in England and kind of have to be in hiding or they can leave but where do you go in england there is no more land there all of the nobles and the nobility have all of the land bought you were either a serf where you worked the land or you were essentially a peasant so they start looking outside they bounce around a few different places but they settle in holland for a couple of years and everything's fine They can practice their religion. It's fine. But then they notice something that really disappoints them. They still think of themselves as British citizens. And their children that are growing up, they just seem a bit Dutch all of a sudden. And there is nothing worse than a Dutch accent. I think we can agree. So now what do we do? We can't really go back to England but our children are Dutch. What's worse? Religious intolerance? Another accent. Option C is this new world that has just been discovered, definitely by Christopher Columbus and definitely land that was not uh, inhabited by anyone else. Absolutely free. No one is there. Never mind the 300 plus Native American tribes. No one is there. We can just go over there and start our own colony. Completely uninhabited. Completely uninhabited. America, just to give you an idea, has so much land. It is 40 times bigger than the British island. So this group of pilgrims, there's 102 of them. They start to come over. However, whoever their travel agent was completely failed them. They leave much later than they should. They leave in September, which means the wind going across the Atlantic is now against them. It takes them twice as long to get to the American coast. There are times they're traveling on the Atlantic Ocean at two miles an hour. Do you know what two miles an hour is? Less than a walk. 
Why well, yes, walking speed. You can walk faster than this boat was going. So why do you leave? Why is September too late? You leave earlier in the season so that you can plant crops in the summer and the fall, and you can also build your shelter. If you leave in September and show up in November, you have no crops to plant. You have no shelter that you have to scramble to build. And also, Plymouth wasn't their intended landing point. They actually meant to land 200 miles south. They end up landing in what is modern-day Massachusetts. I don't know if you know this or not. There is a big difference in the climate between Virginia and Massachusetts in the winter. The pilgrims walk up on onto the onto the territory and they see a barren wasteland. Little do they know that just years before a plague had wiped out a large section of Native American tribes. Up to 90% of tribes may have been given unto this plague. They come in and their bones bleached from the sun everywhere. And they think, this is great. God obviously cleared this land for us to live on. They got rid of all the Native Americans. This is our promised land. They start setting up and they have to scramble again. They have to scramble to build their houses. They have no food. And one day, a Wampanoag, uh, Wampanoag warrior just walks into their, into their town and freaks them the F out. They don't know who this person is, what their intentions are, or what, uh, what they're going to do. The Wampanoag just went through the plague, and they were one of the most severely hit of the plague. However, the Wampanoag essentially have three options, what they can do with these pilgrims. They can A, attack. And if you think about it, the new pilgrims have are weakened. They have rifles. They have steel. They have resources that most tribes in the area do not have. They can do option two. They can wait them out. Nature is likely going to kill most of them. Or option three. They can help them. They can help them get through the winter. Luckily for the pilgrims, the Wampanoag help them out. Part of the reason the Wampanoags don't attack is they believe they can use these new Englishmen as trading partners. They're, they're smart enough to know that there are other Englishmen coming. So if they can befriend the first group, they should have an advantage in trading. They befriend the pilgrims. Then they have the first Thanksgiving. Maybe. And everything was uh, great for the rest of time. Everything was peaceful. Nothing ever went wrong. Just kept bringing stuffing and mashed potatoes to the old dinner table, huh? They did. For about a generation. What's unique about the Pilgrims is, again, if you ask the Pilgrims, they're British. They're very, they're not going to give up their their British citizenship 
But with every generation, they become just a little bit less British. Every generation loses their accent. They become a little bit more independent. They can trade amongst themselves. They can kind of stand up on their own legs. They're like Diet Coke. They're not Coke. They're still part of the empire. We're glad to have them, but they're just not. They're not British. How do they build up their wealth? Turns out tobacco grows very well in the South. And who, and as you're developing these colonies, they look around and they notice they have a severe labor shortage. Where can we find labor? They give a think. We can't have that many kids. So what do we do? Luckily for them, and very unluckily for Native Americans, they start heading to Africa where they trade and start enslaving people to ship them off to work the lands. Now, big long history into it. We're not going to get into that. However, just know they start filtering in African-Americans in from Europe. So again, every generation becoming just a little bit less British. Slavery is being developed in the South. The North still has slavery, but because they're not reliant on plantations, they're a little bit less dependent on slavery. The 13 colonies, as we know them, start to develop, and they have their own local governments, which is great for England, because if you think of it, most of the territories are the colonies they have. People were already there. Now, we're ignoring Native Americans exist in America, but it's basically British citizens were growing on the East Coast. Once they are able to set up their own governments, they're a little bit more independent. They can govern themselves. That's great at first for the British colonies. They can even start passing their own taxes. This works well until about the mid-1750s. When, remember all that land I talk about America having? Americans want more of it. No. Well, colonists want more of it. They're not Americans yet. Spoiler. Colonists start jumping the line into French territory. At this time, there are essentially three major powers on the continent. You have British, the coast, the East Coast, 13 colonies that we're talking about. You have the French, that is basically in the Ohio territory, uh, basically think the middle of the continent. And then you have Mexico or Spain that has the rest. Those are the three main powers. There's kind of an unwritten rule and some treaties that say, we're not going to impede. Well, that independence that we just talked about for the colonists, they start moving into the Ohio Territory, which is what the British would call disputed territory, what the French would call French territory. They start escalating into what is going to end up becoming the French and the Indian War. The French are using the fur trade or a huge moneymaker inside the Ohio Territory. They have the best relationship with Native Americans, they seem to treat them a little bit more friendly. They seem to treat them a little bit more fairly. Britain, however, just want to fight France, it seems like. Or, more or less, the colonists want their land is going to force Britain into action. Britain, again, sends a delegation to the French commander in French territory about the disputed territory that kindly asked the French 
to get the hell out of the territory, please. This is ours now. It's disputed. It's disputed, isn't it? It's ours. The French politely decline, and for the next seven years, the French and the British fight on American soil. This becomes known as the French and Indian War. Again, a lot of history there. We're going to leave it. We're just going to say Britain wins. But in the middle of that, Britain has an understanding with the colonies that the colonies do not need to pay for the army to be there. They do not even need to feed the army while they're there. Britain ships in food from Britain rather than just feed off of the resources of the colonies. Turns out that gets awfully expensive for the two biggest superpowers in the country to fight a war across an ocean on all of their dime. Britain opens up after the Seven Years' War, its treasury looks in and sees a lonely mouse sitting in the corner of the room wondering why it's starving. There is nothing. Britain is near bankruptcy. So what do they do? They all but promised the colonists did not need to pay for any of it. The colonists agreed. Britain now has to start levying some taxes, and they do. The dreaded taxes. As I said before, there was an understanding that the colonists didn't have to pay for anything. The, co- the British uh, Parliament pass a few different taxes. And America blows up. They burn effigies. They, ri- they riot. They rebel. They do all they can because of these evil, evil taxes. When furious colonists end up claim they are not being treated as proper British citizens. They have no representation in Parliament. That is passed taxes. They claim they are being treated, and wait for some irony, that they are being treated no better than common slaves, while they themselves had slaves. Meanwhile, the the representative in British Parliament, kind of, was Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin is the most famous American in the world. He is called in front of the House of Commons and is dressed down for hours. It is the moment that Franklin becomes an American revolutionist. Franklin returns home and they start developing the First Continental Congress. Over the next several years, uh, you see a repetition of Parliament passed laws, colonists resist, Parliament revokes, but comes out with laws but keeps others in place. The colonists throw a tea party. Then a Boston massacre happens. Parliament declares New England is under rebellion and shuts down the harbor. The colonists then want to remain. So at this point, British, the colonists still want to be British. They just want proper representation. They meet in the first. They first. They meet in the first Continental Congress. George Washington is elected to run the army and fighting. Americans declare they're free from the British Empire in 1776, and they fight for seven years. And that's for that's as far as we can get into that because there is so much. 
that we can talk about on that. 1783, the Revolutionary War ends. America runs a few years on a very weak constitution. And after a rebellion or two, they start realizing that the initial constitution they signed is not as strong as it should be. In fact, it was pretty weak. They come up with a constitutional convention. During the constitutional convention, they debate over proper representation, what we would, what they would claim to be big state or small state. But in reality, it becomes, is it slave state or free state? And more importantly, how do we count for representation from a free state, from a slave state? How strong should the government be? They form three branches of government, all equal. They can all keep themselves. They can all keep themselves uh, in balance with each other. Then they come to population again. Well, how do you count the population? And what they end up coming down to as a debate is: Are black people people? In any other context in the South, black people, African Americans, are property. You see them listed with the horses and the nails and every other form of property they have. However, when we're talking about population and representative, black people are people. For for every five slaves, we will count three as a population. The North agrees, not because they agree with it necessarily, not saying that the North was angels, but we have to remember there is no guarantee that the Americans, that the American constitution and the the United States as we know it was going to actually pass in the constitutional convention without the South. They needed nine states to ratify for the constitution to take into effect. The South simply would not join without being able to count with one with slavery, not intact and without proper representation in their minds. The North goes along with the three-fifths compromise. And great news, the North thinks, slavery is actually on the downslope. It's only a matter of time before it dies out, and they honestly believe slavery is on the downturn. They even agree to put an amendment in to end the slave trade by 1808. They could still have slaves, but you couldn't import them after that date. And then the cotton gin happened. Pretty harsh to blame one machine on men's morals. Seems like a pretty convenient excuse because it's a convenient excuse. But what the cotton gin does is it easily separates the seeds from the cotton plant, which basically explodes the amount of production you can do for cotton. So instead of doing a couple pounds a day, you can do a couple dozen pounds a day. Um, Cotton explodes to the point where it's going to be King Cotton going up into the Civil War. Americans, however, on the Western Front still want to keep pushing into the Ohio Territory. They keep challenging Native Americans off their land. They push Native Americans further west which forced Native Americans to fight other Native Americans off of their land, that domino effect eventually continues for the rest of the 19th century. Border security is, an early, is a big deal on the part of the early West. Britain is in Canada. France owns the Great Plains down through Louisiana, which is about a third of the continent. 
Again, they're not heavily populated in the area. They own the land in name only. And then Mexico and Spain owns basically the rest of the continent. Jefferson, seeing he's not able to control his own countrymen from moving across into the new territory, is worried that the movement may spark a war with the French, similar to the French and Indian War. France is now under the leadership of Napoleon, who needs money to finance his own wars all over Europe. When you, when the offer to buy New Orleans is turned down, but the proposal for the sale of the entire French territory, Jefferson worries about if he has the authority to do so, but buys the land anyway. Jefferson buying the Louisiana Purchase is a big deal. There is no underestimating how important it was to the U.S. Jefferson essentially peacefully claimed half of a continent with the stroke of a pen. I'm not sure if there's another territory that has been, more land has been acquired peacefully without a war, but Jefferson eliminates the French off of the continent for just money. Well, now the debate is gonna continue until the Civil War. What do we do with all of this new territory? Jefferson believes it's going to take a thousand years to fully occupy the new land. But the question is, Will that land become free or will it become slave? The ending result ends up in the Compromise of 1820 or the Missouri Compromise. It is, the Missouri Compromise or the Compromise of 1820 is designed to stunt the spread of slavery. They pick a line on a map, a modern day northern border of Oklahoma. The land below the line is free for slavery to be, enter the Union. Land above that line will not be open for slavery. In order to keep the balance between free and slave states, however, uh, basically every time a new state comes in, you needed to have a counterpart. So in this instance, Missouri came in as a slave state, but Maine entered the Union as a free state, and they kept this balance for the next 30 years. In between, Texas breaks off from Mexico. We'll get into it uh, in our episodes. It basically boils down to James Polk, who was president at the time, running on the Monroe Doctrine, saying that it was the United States' destiny to control the continent, uh, finds any excuse to take over the rest of the continent. He basically prods the Mexican government into war. Mexico is not organized and is actually repeatedly overthrown by its own citizens. It's very similar to the American Revolution, other than as if the American Revolution never stopped and they kept throwing another revolution every couple of years. In short, America takes advantage of that, invades Mexico, literally invades Mexico City, and the treaty that results ends up completing the rest of the, Mex the American uh, border as we know it, the modern American border. Again, a massive amount of land was just caught up or was just caught. Now the debate was, what do we do with all the land we just got from Mexico? And what do we do with all of that was claimed? The U.S. is still balancing the Compromise of 1820. A congressman from Pennsylvania, however, stands up and claims that no land acquired from the Mexicans should allow slavery. The South erupts. 
Southern members of Congress threatened to secede almost instantly at the thought of any new lands would not allow slavery. This, what ends up being the Wilmot Proviso is the most famous failed act in American history. Because even just the threat of not spreading slavery, the South threatens to secede. A deal is reached. The Wilmot Proviso does not go in. The two sides, however, are no longer parties. They are now more split geographically. They are north and south. And then, to escalate things further, the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854 comes into law. What this does is it eliminates the Compromise of 1820. Instead, states would be allowed self-determination. So citizens of that territory, when they're entering the Union, can vote if they want to be a slave state or a free state. The first test was Kansas and Nebraska, and it was so successful, this is the time of Kansas territory where it is known as Bleeding Kansas, men cross the border from Missouri and storm into Kansas and vote for slavery. Kansians, not wanting Missourians to take over their vote, uh, fight them off, and fighting erupts all across the state. It ends up with a falsely elected slavery-backing government and an anti-slavery government in Kansas. Two governments are elected, and they're not quite sure which one is legal. Oh, while they're struggling with fighting uh, about slavery in the East, gold is discovered in the West. Americans had been moving West before the founding of the country, but when President Polk literally holds up a piece of gold in a speech to Congress, men leave in droves and rush across the West. In the Southwest, just to give you an example, whenever there's a mineral claim, anyone who goes across um, in the Southwest, a man who is determined to find a mineral claim for himself is warned that the only thing he will find in Arizona is his own tombstone. He then finds the largest silver strike that anyone can remember and then names the near the town, he names it, Tombstone. Whenever a mineral strike happens, basically repeat this pattern. Men look for minerals, gold, silver, iron, whatever. Men find said minerals. Many, 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 many more men come over to get rich quick and be able to pick up the minerals from the soil. Anyone in the way of the fortune-seeking men are pushed aside by any means, i.e. Native Americans. When men flood to pick up their fortune, others come in to, quote, mine the miners. They charge, uh, they instead of going to the rivers or to the mines to pick up the minerals or to hunt for minerals, they charge for tools. They put up hotels and saloons, laundry services, the ever-popular prostitution. Men may try to find their fortune, but for the most part, take whatever they do find and end up just spending it that night at a saloon or on a prostitute. Back out east, the Civil War breaks out after the election of Abraham Lincoln. 
This results in the deadliest war in American history. For many of the figures we're about to cover, this is the event in their lifetime. During the second year of the Civil War, the Homestead Act is passed. The Homestead Act is a really big deal for anyone who wants to move out west. Essentially, any citizen who had never taken up arms against the U.S., suck it, Confederates, including freed slaves after the 14th Amendment, and who was at least 21 years old or the head of the household, could file an application on land for federal grant, usually 160 acres or 65 acres for a half. Women were actually eligible. Uh, the All the occupant had to do was reside on the land for five years, show evidence that they had made improvements on the land. This process had to be all completed within seven years. Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment passed. The North wins the Civil War. Most of what we are going to cover in our figures is the fallout of the Civil War. Uh, it is the event when it comes to the West. Most of our figures of who moves into the West, for the most part, single, young men, looking to either run away from something, uh, such as debt. They may be running towards something, such as minerals or uh, just new opportunities. This is a place where you can literally reinvent yourself and become whoever you would like, uh, as many of the men and women we cover will do. Other things we will talk about other than people in the series, we will talk about railroads, we will talk about tycoons, we will talk about cowboys and cattle drives, mineral strikes, basically anything that adds to uh, the surrounding of our figures, we will go into or we will touch on special episodes, things, something like that. Um, hopefully, you have enjoyed our, our uh, background episode, and hopefully the next time you hear us, we will actually be reviewing someone. Mm -hmm. Remember, we are on all the podcast services, so go ahead and check us out and give us a like if you liked what you heard. We do have an email. We would love to hear from you. Our email is ranking76pod at gmail.com. We are on Instagram. Our handle is ranking76podcast. And we do have a Facebook page, Ranking 76, the American West podcast. Please go ahead and give us a follow. And until next time, I'm Matt. I'm Eric. Thanks for listening. Thank you.